From The Advocate magazine, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. Before our official season relaunch coming this week, I wanted to bring you this brand new conversation that we had with Alice Wu. Alice is the writer and director of The Half of It, now on Netflix, and the movie really captures that special period in a queer person's life where you have this attraction, this desire, you have that feeling of queerness in your body, but you very much do not yet have the words or language to describe it. So you'll hear us talk about capturing that on the page and then screen, as well as Alice's first film, Saving Face, the now iconic lesbian rom-com. And then just a reminder, our new season debuts on May 28th, you can listen to it on any and all podcast platforms. And if you do, please help us spread the word on social media. Doing things like that really helps our show continue to grow. So thank you so much for that. All right, without further ado, here's Alice. I'm excited to talk because I find your career so exciting because it is proof of two things. One, that it's never too late to pull a 180 and try something new. You quit your career at Microsoft to become a filmmaker, and also your new film is coming out 15 years after your first. And I think that's equally inspiring because there is this myth in Hollywood that you can't take a break, that you can't pause momentum. Did you ever have worries about that? Yeah. I mean, I certainly bought into that myth. I thought when I left the industry 10 years ago, I thought I'd left for good. I never thought I'd be back. And I left specifically because my mom had uh, some serious health issues that were acute. So I dropped everything to go to San Francisco to help her with that. And then it just took a lot longer than I expected. And I remember the conversation when my agent called me to be like, are you coming back? Like, what is happening? And I just in that moment was like, no, I'm not. You know, because I never went into filmmaking, like I I didn't get started to my late 20s and I had a different career. And then I, you know, went up to San Francisco to take care of my mom, which was home, right? Like to be able to focus on my family uh, as I was heading into my 40s was felt right. And so had I asked you at that time, would you ever make another film? Your answer would have been like, probably not. Yeah, I think I, I, in fact, I got asked that all the time because there apparently is a very rabid group of uh, Saving Face fans. Like I always thought they were very small, but they're very, very determined. I didn't realize till my second film got announced, like all these people came out of the woodwork um, all over the world being like, I've been waiting for another film. And I'm like, what? <laughs> this is true. Like I had no idea. But a lot of my friends are also, you know, they're either queer or they're Asians. And so I got asked all the time where they'd be like, this movie meant so much to me. When are you making another one? And I'd be like, probably never. <laughs> like I'd be like, you know, you never know. But I think that time in my life, that chapter might be over. And at that time that you were a caretaker, were you happy and content doing just that? You know, it's a hard one to answer because in hindsight, it's easier to say yes. When it's happening, it's really deeply uncomfortable. When those roles are reversed, and granted, it's again, I hadn't lived at home since I was 16. So it wasn't like my mom had been taking care of me in any direct way, but emotionally, she, you know, she was my mom. You know, it was very sort of stressful, but it also was probably necessary because so why it seems great now is it was a few years of a lot of, you know, um, fighting and arguing and and, and those kinds of power struggles. But I think those are the things you kind of have to go through to get to real intimacy. And I think while my mom and I 
I honestly can't think anyone could love me more than my mom. And I don't love anyone more than I love my mom. But I don't think we had the most intimate relationship, you know, because there are a lot of areas we just didn't know how to talk about. And now we do. When you say, was it like rewarding? It was, but it didn't feel like it while it was happening. But in hindsight, I can't imagine anything that would have been more rewarding in in my 40s. And I hope that asking that isn't judgmental, but I just think like looking at your story of, you know, working at Microsoft and quitting your job to move to New York City to, you know, give yourself five years to make a movie. There's so much motivation and ambition in that, that it then surprises me that somebody could be like content putting all that aside. Oh, that's such an interesting parallel and so smart to think about it that way. I I think the reason why I think those two things are linked, though, is I didn't move to New York to become a filmmaker. I moved to New York to try and make Saving Face, which I didn't think would get made, by the way. Like, who thought that movie was going to get made, right, 15 years ago? I went that I wrote that movie for my mom. That's oh, that, that's sorry. That's really that's a really nuanced distinction between the two. That you didn't set out to be a filmmaker. You set out to make one film. Yeah, I, I I wanted to make that film. I didn't think that film would get made, but I also think sometimes, you know, it's similar. It's similar to I'm going to go take care of my mom. If you told me during that time, especially in those years we were fighting, that like someday you would have this wonderful intimate relationship with your my your mom, I'd be like, yeah, that's never ever happening. That woman is impossible. I love her to death, but she's impossible, right? But you do it out of your love for that person. So similarly, in trying to make the movie. I did it out of my deep love for that, I guess, that script and just that desire to be like, well, it's like a one in a million chance. But man, if it happens, <laughs> that would be amazing. But if it doesn't, I don't think I thought beyond that. So when it actually got made, I I really was like, you know, like, what is happening right now? <laughs> this is not, this is a, so again, it was a fun, but very disorienting few years. You know, I, I've become aware that I am the kind of filmmaker that isn't like as much as I love directing, I love, you know, I I think I need to love the project. Like I need to love it. Like it's like almost a child for me. Um, otherwise you sacrifice a lot. Like this is not a field that doesn't demand physical and emotional sacrifices from you, right? Like there's no world where it's like, I'm off making my film and I have plenty of emotional energy for my best friends and my family. Like there's, it's literally like for a number of months, I'm pretty much checked out unless it's an emergency and that's a sacrifice. So I kind of have to ask myself if I'm going to do that for something, is it worth that sacrifice? So you set out to make a film, not be a filmmaker. When did you start to identify as a filmmaker? That's a really good question because I don't think it was maybe not until this movie, actually, because I always was like, I wonder if that movie was just a fluke. (laughs) That was such a fluke. It was like a really lovely shoot. And I really loved being on set. And I think that was when I was like, okay, I still have a lot to learn. I've only made two films, but maybe I am a filmmaker. Like maybe this is something that, that I actually, you know, that is somewhere in my blood. Yeah. And I think that the half of it walks this really compelling line in terms of queerness, that the main character is someone who doesn't have it all figured out yet and doesn't have the language to describe her sexuality. I think what touched me was the respect that the movie had for her and like where she's at in terms of that process and your queerness. And you as a filmmaker met her where she was at. And I haven't seen that in many films yet. 
Oh, no, thank you for saying that. Like, I, yes, that's exactly right. Because I think people sometimes I'll get asked, like, now is Ellie this or is Ellie this? And what I end up saying is like, Ellie's 17. <laughs> and I, I don't know what you were like at 17, but at 17, I was even out to myself and I didn't come out to myself till my senior year of college. And it was painfully, once I did, I had had crushes on girls probably since the fourth grade. Like I had a deep crush on the same girl all three years of high school. And I was not out to myself. How is that possible, right? It's possible for exactly the reason you just said, which is we don't have the language always to explain our emotions. And when it comes to something as scary as potentially one's, you know, you know, whether your queerness or even just your sexual identity at all. At 17, I think just the notion of sex can be a bit terrifying because it's so confusing. Yeah. And not having all the answers is very real for that age. Um, it's real for any age, actually. Um, <laughs> but it's just such an interesting stage of the coming out process to depict. Did you like originally set out wanting to explore that when you were writing it? Yeah, so so it's it's interesting because I didn't actually uh, initially and and I think this often informs like the kind of things I'm just going to write for myself to direct. Um I realize now that it usually comes from some sort of emotional question that I may have been wrestling with in my life, like saving face while the plot has nothing to do with what happened with me and my mom. Um that very much was about you know, is it possible to have both romantic love and your family together in an authentic way, right? And that was something I was grappling with. And I think the half of it started as me really grappling with, like for a whole bunch of reasons, but grappling with this notion of what love was and how, you know, like as a society, we really exalt romantic love, right? And I think growing up, I wasn't allowed to watch TV, but I was allowed to watch classic movies and I was allowed to watch Chinese soap operas. And because we didn't, weren't allowed to watch anything violent, that pretty much meant like romantic dramas or romantic comedies. So I totally bought into this idea that like the whole point of those movies is at the end, these two people hopefully end up together, right? Um, and once they do, it's like the happy ending, like, right? Like the whole goal is to find your perfect other half. And I think sort of a getting a bit older and realizing like, huh, that seems kind of weird now. Like in my twenties, that made total sense. But once I got past that, I started realizing, well, even if you do find someone who you're like, I want to spend the rest of my life with this person, it doesn't really seem like, and then your life just ends in this wonderful crescendo, right? It seems like, and then life goes on and all these other things come up. And, and thinking about that and realizing that I naturally focus so much on like my romantic partner but there are all these other relationships in my life that are at least as important. And if I think about like the breakups I've had, I've had, yes, I've had a couple of really difficult romantic breakups, but I wouldn't necessarily say they're worse than some of the platonic breakups I've had. Like, you know, the breakups that can happen between a parent and a child, right? Like when if a, one can't accept the other for some reason, like that heartbreak is devastating. The heartbreaks that happen with your closest friends where, and those are often incredibly quiet. They're not like we had a fight, we don't talk. They're more like someone moves, someone gets a relationship, and then somehow you feel less connected and then less connected. And then one day you're like, you you miss that intimacy, right? Like there's a yeah. hole. And because with romantic relationships, you put a label on it, when that relationship ends, you have to have a conversation. But for friends, you can just fade away. Yes. And, and it is really true. Like literally if I decided, if I was dating someone for like 
you know, I don't know, two months and we broke up, my friends would be like, oh, are you okay? That's terrible. But if it's like you and your best friend slowly fade away, like if you tell people they're like, oh yeah, that's a bummer. But there's not like a big, like your friends don't all show up to hug you. Like there's not like this big, are you okay? And I think thinking about all that, I mean, it really did make me think about how my first really interesting, like my first big heartbreak after I came out to myself as a senior in college was not over like a girl, but was actually over a guy, like a straight, uh, straight white guy of all things that, you know, seemed like a perfectly fine guy, but is not who I would have thought was going to be my best friend. But we just talked about it as if, you know, like there was just a manner in which he accepted me that I, in hindsight, was extraordinarily supportive and healing for me. And I think when eventually, you know, I think society doesn't always know what to do with those sorts of friendships, like it was actually very hard to maintain that intimacy. And the sadness I felt over that is what led me into thinking like, I'm going to write a story about like the lesbian straight male best friend and talk about love through that lens. But in the process somehow it became a high school movie because I, mainly because I, I think I didn't know how to wrap my brain around something I was that close to. Um, and then at a certain point I was like, oh, I should just set this in high school because as you pointed out, that that time, that coming of age time is so tender, right? And I think it's so formative for so many of us that I actually suspect that that place is where we go to no matter how old you are. Like, right? Like I just turned 50 a few weeks ago, right? But if you told me I had to go out and ask someone who I harbored a deep crush on and tell them, I would instantly become 15, right? Like it's just a, and so knowing that made me go, well, this is an interesting time to set this story. You know, so many high school movies follow the same tropes, and for good reasons too, because the high school experience is fairly similar in terms of classes and um, desks and football games. I just wonder, is it hard to, you know, write about the high school experience and also make it feel unique? Oh, yeah. I think because when I started to write this, again, I wrote from a place where I didn't think anyone would read it. I just was writing for myself. I was thinking more about the fact that I decided Trump had been elected and I decided to set this in a rural town, right? Because I, 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 there was just something about a want some of the issues I wanted to deal with in terms of xenophobia or homophobia, you know, racism, classism, all these things that, like, this film could end up being a period piece. It could be, like, set in the 90s, right? And I guess the other thing is, the other thing that can happen in high school is the feeling that somehow you are in this bubble of alienation and loneliness and everybody else has figured out a, a way to be part of high school, right? And so a lot of the shots, I'm thinking, like, it's like you're alone and everyone around you is just in, in this sort of, like, like, they all seem to belong. They all seem happy together. They all seem, right? Which is what I think is almost everyone's experience of high school. Yeah. I mean, one of the patterns I've seen doing interviews for four years is that everyone viewed themselves as an outsider, more or less. Yes. Everyone thought they were the outsider, and everyone thought that they were the only outsider in their high school. Yes. Because for me, yes. now looking back, I see that I was, like, well-liked, enough, but I didn't know that at the time, but I felt like the outsider. And looking back now, I'm like, oh, I could have identified five other outsiders, yet none of us like got together. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Do you think, were you out to yourself in high school? Um, I don't know how to answer that. I grew up in North Carolina. I didn't know another gay person like in life. Yeah. And so I knew inside that I had attraction to men, but I also firmly 
rationally, just reasonably believe that I would just never tell anybody for the rest of my life. I I totally, I'm totally the same. And be, I sometimes feel like that plays into what, what you just talked about, that notion of being like you do feel alone because all around you, you're seeing signifiers of people starting to date. When you already have that kind of charade set up, like you're already used to having to be like, you know, I date boys and be like, yes, this is great. You know, but it was like, I don't know any different. It's not like I got to date a girl and compare. So somewhere in my head, I thought there's just probably something a little like not even like aware of the gate, just somehow it's like everyone else is hearing one song that I do not hear. And I just have to dance as if I understand that song, even though I don't know what the beat is and I don't know what the melody is. And I don't know, you know, like I'm just trying to like not stick out. For sure. You mentioned coming out at the last year of college. In your bio, it says that you realized you were queer at a gender studies class. Is that correct? Yeah. In a feminist studies class, actually. Uh, I took a uh, feminist studies class from this amazing professor named Estelle Friedman, who's like one of the preeminent queer historians in the world. And so at the time, this is like an end of 1989, right? So it's a very different era. And I remembered her giving us the assignment. Like, so there she is. She's like talking and she ends up coming out to us as a class, which at the time we were all like a little startled by. And then she said she wanted us all to write a letter to our parents, which we wouldn't send, but a coming out letter to our parents that we would turn in. I speak Mandarin with my parents and I don't know how to read or write. Like I would never tell them something this important in English. So the idea of writing a letter to them would have made no sense. So I thought, well, I guess I could record this on a, on a, on a tape. So what I did was I went out and borrowed two tape recorders and an extension cord uh, because I, I lived in a two-room double where my roommate also spoke and understood Mandarin. But now I was like paranoid if I was recording this in my room, she would hear me say this and think I was gay. So then I put one tape recorder in my room, started loudly playing um, Cat Stevens' Footsteps in the Dark 2 tape. It was like literally playing that, like, I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. And then I took like the other tape recorder and the extension cord into the walk-in closet and shut that door. And I proceeded to record this thing I'd say to my parents. And there I am. Then I had to write a thing in English to my professor to explain what this was. So I'm like writing this thing very academically about like, well, that was fascinating. Like, I, for one thing, I didn't know the word for gay in Mandarin. And maybe if you don't know the word, how can you think what it is? So I'm going on and on and on. And finally, I'm like, well, I suppose I'm writing so much about this because I am gay. So there. I said it. And that was the moment I came out to myself. And I even remembered being like, this is ludicrous. I'm sitting in my closet coming out of the closet. Like that, this is such cheap symbolism that like if I put it in a movie, people would be like, that is way too heavy handed. <laughs> but that's, that's what happened. I turned it in and yeah, that's what happened. And I know your mom originally had a hard time with it. Had she come around to your sexuality by the time you moved back in with her in San Francisco? Oh, yes. She came around basically by the time Saving Face came out. And I always remember this moment. So this is right before we're due to shoot. And she and I are like driving. It's a Sunday. We're like in her minivan driving down Highway 1. And I just remember it's like there was sun coming in. It was like very like comfortable. And then all of a sudden I just kind of looked at her and I was like, so mom you know, you've read the script now, you know what it's about. And I was kind of like, you do realize that the moment this movie comes out, all of your friends are going to know why I'm not married. And there was like this long pause and she was like, yeah. And then I was like, well, what do you think? And she thought about it for a really long time. And then she said, 
I'm not going to lie. It's going to be hard. But if this is what you want, then this is what I want for you. I remembered in that moment just being like, it doesn't, I was like, I don't even need to make the movie anymore. <laughs> it's like, this is like, that was the moment where I'm like, you know, you know, cause honestly, I also thought when that movie came out, I was like, oh God, I'm not gonna be able to eat in like any Chinese restaurant again. It's going to be a disaster. Um, and the big surprise for all of us was how much the Chinese community embraced that movie. Like the Chinese newspapers wrote about that movie for like weeks. Like we ended up winning the Golden Horse Audience Award in Taiwan. It's just like the in some ways, it's like the Asian Oscars. And um, and that was a huge surprise. But my mom couldn't have known that at the point she, you know, accepted me. I mean, I, I guess that's the thing. It's such a sacrifice to make a film. It really is. So I think you really want to think about what it is you're hoping to achieve, like what that sacrifice is for. I, I think you want your humanity to inform your art and vice versa. I know we were joking at the top of the interview about like Hollywood always asks what what's next. But we are at the end of the interview, and I, like, want to know, like, do you know or have any idea, like, what is next? It's so funny because it's, it's like, I know my agents are, like, champing at the bit because there's all these things coming in. I've actually just been, like, listen, I'm going to devote this month to, to promoting this movie. Like, this is like a child, right? Then I want to, like, unplug, disappear off the face of the earth for, like, a few weeks and realis myself. Like, I have three ideas of my own that I'd love to, like, one in particular I want to start working on. If any of them comes to fruition in a way that I think is worth sharing, then I'm going to probably work like the Dickens to try and get that thing made. If it doesn't, I am reading things. And it's not like I'm, I'm not like a, you know, it's not like I'm making 12 years a slave. Like I'm not like a big, important movie maker. It can be something that's just purely fun, right? But I think I just need to know what personally is the reason why I think I'm the right person to make it. It sounds so grand when I say it this way, but if you're going to put that much effort in anything, then you want to feel like you've left something behind in the world that you can point to and say, okay, maybe this helped these people, right? Because otherwise I'm not sure... It's worth it. And I think that's such like a nice place to stop. Thank you for this. Yeah, no, thank you, Jeffrey. And a big thank you to Alice Wu for that. Her new film, The Half of It, is now on Netflix. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please help us spread the word on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The podcast is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. Doing things like that really helps our show continue to grow. So thank you for that. Were produced by The Advocate magazine. Special thank you to Tobin Lowe, Jeremy S. Bloom, and Zach McNeese for all their help. We'll see you next week. Bye.